We've been going through Romans, and we just went through a section there which people use 6, 7, 8, 9 to try to show that the law of God is done away with and that it's an evil, foul thing, despite the fact, as I pointed out as we read it, that he calls there in chapter 7 the law holy and just and good. The people focus on just a few verses there and in Galatians to try to do away with everything God has set up. Somebody brought up a point this last week that I think is worth going back to. We're kind of past that section, but I want to add this as a postscript because throughout the rest of the Bible, the law of God is spoken of with great respect and fear and love. And somebody had been reading Psalm 119 this last week and mentioned to me, wow, let's look at that in the light of Romans and Galatians. 176 verses where David over and over expresses his delight in the law of God and how it gives him understanding and wisdom. And oh, how I love I thy law. We sing it here on page 90 in our hymn book. It is ever with me. Thy commands make me wiser than the ancients of old. I'll never forget your law. It's a wonderful thing. I was just, during the song service here, paging quickly through, if you can do that, Psalm 119. I don't know whether it's the longest chapter in the Bible, but it's probably very, very close to it. I didn't check. 176 verses. But uh, every one of these verses mentions the law, the testimony, the statutes, the judgments, uh, all the various forms of law in one, one form or another that, uh, that there is. <clears throat> Chapter t- or, uh, verse 2, Blessed are they that keep his testimonies and that seek him with the whole heart. So his testimonies are part of wholeheartedness to God. How are you going to get rid of that? That's what he tells us at the end time here. I want wholeheartedness out of what we're laid to sins. Verse 16, I will delight myself in your statutes. I will not forget your word. And yet people are trying to forget it completely. Don't let me wander from your commandments in verse 10. Uh, These were something that David thought about and lived by and and held as close to him as he could. Uh, Verse 32, I will run the way of your commandments when you shall enlarge my heart. It says, when God, when you give me better understanding and enlarge my heart, I will run to your commandments. That doesn't sound like he hated them. He ran to them. When you, when you start looking at this testimony, you begin to wonder, why would somebody do away with something that David loved so much? It doesn't make any sense at all. Verse 39, Turn away my reproach which I fear, for your judgments are good. He lays out uh, how he does his judgment through his laws. And he wants the law of God, which is a merciful, positive law, to help take away the reproach of his life. You keep God's laws, you won't have near as much reproach, will you? You won't have people hating you as much if you're keeping them. Unless they think you're breaking them. Whatever. Uh, You can go on, verse 47, I'll delight myself in your commandments, which I have loved. Verse 44, so shall I keep your law continually forever and ever. He is going to live forever and ever in the kingdom of God. And he will still be keeping the laws of God then, apparently. Sounds like it's what he's saying. And he understood that there is a life after this one. I could go on and on. Uh, Verse 67, Before I was afflicted, I went astray. But now have I kept your word. So there was a time when he didn't keep it the way he should. And he fixed that. I'll keep your precepts with my whole heart, verse 69. Uh, 
Oh, what does my eye fall on here? Verse 92, unless your law had been my delight, I should then have perished in my affliction. He realized that he was breaking it, and he would have perished in that affliction if he hadn't returned to God's law. Now, he asked for forgiveness because he had broken it, but he knew that the way to life was through the law. The life doesn't kill, the law doesn't kill you. Uh, the law is a good, wonderful thing to delight in. The only way it can kill you is if you break it. But if you keep it, you'll be happy. It goes on and on. Uh, but I'll, I'll stop there. But you can read through there all 176 verses, and it shows how much David respected and loved and was in awe of all the statutes, judgments, and laws of God. So are we going to let a few things hard to be understood that Paul wrote steer us away from the whole direction of the rest of the Bible? <laughs> you can't do that. Anyway, uh, that's a little aside. Well, it's not really aside from the point. It's just going back to where we were uh, and adding a point there that you could keep in mind if anybody questions the law of God, tell them, go back and read Psalm 119. When you're done, we'll talk. <laughs> you know? That's a, that's a pretty good proof testimony, or pretty good testimony right there. All right, we were in chapter 8 of Romans. I finished with verse 25 last week, so we'll pick it up in 26. He says, likewise, well, let's, let's read verse 25 where we wound up. But if we hope for that we see not, then do we with patience wait for it. So there's an explanation of faith. We don't see what God has for us. Uh, we can only try to imagine, and then we fall far, far short. Uh, but we believe Him because we see the things that He has made around us, and they are so phenomenal, even on a physical level here, that it is an introduction into what He does have for us that is even greater. So he says, likewise the Spirit also helps our infirmities, for we know not what we should pray for as we ought, but the Spirit itself makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. Do you think God wants us to be in his kingdom? We don't even know sometimes how we ought to pray or what we should say. We get frustrated, confused. We have difficulty saying, Father, I don't even know at this point what to say. And sometimes it comes easy. You, you have something in mind, you know what you want to say to God, you say it. But I, there are times when I, I don't know how to mouth what I need to say or what I'm after, really. So I ask Him to help me pray. And here, Paul obviously was facing the same thing, and he's encouraging them that even when you don't know what to say to God, the Holy Spirit uh, empathizes, has compassion with you, puts thoughts in your mind to help you pray the way you ought to pray, making intercession for us, and groanings which cannot be uttered. So God has very strong emotions. You have fairly strong emotion when you groan, don't you? Yeah. So, He has those same emotions for us. That's how much He loves us. That He's, he's sitting there saying, come on, come on. You can do this. Here's a, here's a thought for you. Pray about this. He puts thoughts sometimes in our minds. Give us this day our daily bread. And he's not talking about physical food there. Well, he could include that, but that's not primarily the object of what he's saying there. It's the spiritual bread that we need. Everybody on earth, well, for the most part, has physical bread. But very, very few have the spiritual bread. And that's what we need worse than we do the physical bread. 
Christ fasted 40 days without physical bread so that he could partake of spiritual bread. It was more important for that 40 days because he had a big test coming up. And don't you think the Father was up there giving him of his spirit and his power to be able to do what he did and then to withstand all the temptations that Satan would throw in front of him? Yeah, he was making intercession for him. And he says here, he does it for us. Same way. And he that searches the hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because he makes intercession for the saints according to the will of God. So Christ is our mediator, and he's there making intercession. Satan goes before the throne of God to accuse us. That's what accusers do. They're satanic. So Satan goes to accuse, and Christ is there to make intercession. Yeah, go ahead and smile. It's all right. We're serious here. God makes intercession for us. And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to His purpose. So, as we work toward serving God with all our heart, then He causes things to work together for good for us. And we're called according to His purpose. Now, notice up here He said that He makes intercession for us and He search, searches the heart. Uh, the word is used as ponders the heart in Proverbs 5.2. 21.2 and in 24.12. He says he ponders our hearts. Now we're going to talk here in a moment about uh, predestination. And I will preface it with that thought. That here he's saying, I search your hearts. And then he says in Proverbs three times, I ponder your heart. Now if you're searching something and you're pondering it, that implies that you don't know, Right? If I do a word search, it means that I don't know. So I search it out. If I don't know an answer to something, I think about it. I meditate on it. I ponder it. And God says that that's what He does with our hearts. Now, if He already knows exactly what's there, and He knows how it's going to come out, then why would He bother to search it or ponder it? doesn't make sense, does it? It's not logical. So he says he works things out if we obey him and we're called according to his purpose. For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Now, here it says that God foreknew some. Uh, you can see from what Job said, Jeremiah said, a few other places in the Bible, Isaac, Jacob, that God knew them from the womb. Uh, he caused Isaac to be uh, engendered at a certain time and caused the genetic structure through the sperm that was chosen to be what he was. Jacob the same. He knew them from the womb when they were first conceived. So he did, in that sense, foreknow them. Now let's go on down. Uh, some he predestinated. Now what does that mean? It means predetermined. Determined ahead of time. Now he's talking here about being called, right? The end of verse 28. He's not, he's not talking about ultimate salvation. He's talking about the calling. He called according to his purpose, and whom he predetermined to call, uh, he determined that they should be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren, that other brethren would come along that were like him. So what he did was he called certain ones. Now, he doesn't call the mighty and the noble. He calls the weak and the base. 
So, he determines ahead of time whom he is going to call. And then from those, we read that few will be chosen. So, it is a process that goes on. The Protestants will try to tell you that, based on uh, what it says in Ephesians 1, that God knew who all of us would be before the foundation of the world was even laid, and that whether you would be in the kingdom of God or not was determined clear back then. Now, does that make any kind of sense at all? Why does he tell us to grow? Why does he tell us to overcome? Why does he tell us to obey and fight against our nature? If it's already set in stone, predetermined, let's say, billions of years ago when they were doing all this planning, if it's already decided what's going to happen to us, hey, I can do anything I want because I know that in the long run I'll be in the kingdom of God. Or, on the other hand, I'll be in the third resurrection. So what difference does it make what I do if it's already determined way back then? Well, the rest of the Bible indicates that that is not the case. That it is all a matter of growing and overcoming. Now, Paul is the one who wrote this, right? Why did Paul say, I fight myself into control lest I become a castaway? So that shows that he himself understood that it had not been preordained that he would be in the kingdom of God before the world was even created. Because he said, I'm in the good grace of God now, but if I fall out of that through disobedience, I could be lost. In other words, it wasn't fully determined yet. So we've got to understand the context and what God is literally saying here as opposed to dreaming up something that you have to read into and force into the context. Why does he need to make intercession and groan for us if it's already decided? Why does he need to expend that emotion for you or for me when he sees us getting ourselves in trouble? Because he doesn't want us to fail. And therefore, he works hard at interceding and Christ works hard at putting down the accuser, Satan the devil, because he will accuse us of things we have done, and he will accuse us of things that we have not done. That's the way he thinks. And we cannot think like Satan thinks. Therefore, Christ is there to intercede for us. So those that he knew about predetermined, he predestinated to be conformed to the image of his Son. Now, being conformed to the image means what? Changed. You, you conform, you change things. But if it's already decided, why do you need to change anything? So he's talking about change right here in the same verse, three words down, actually one word down, because the 2B is not even in the Greek. Uh, so predestination and being conformed is right there together. You've got to be like Christ if you're going to be in the kingdom of God. And he said he wanted those to come along so that he would not only be the firstborn, but many would join him. Moreover, whom he did predetermine, them he also called. So it says here he, he predetermined to call certain ones. Now, is that individuals? It might be from the womb. Is it from before the world was even created? I think we can show that that is not the case. Because God did not know all of us back then. Think about it. Has there ever been any fornication, any adultery since Adam and Eve on down? Have there ever been any rape since then? Abuses and molestations and all that kind of stuff? For you to be you, as you sit here today, somewhere in your background, 
father, mother, grandfather, great-great-grandfather, all the way back to Adam, somewhere in your past there is illegitimacy, I'll guarantee you. And probably even closer than you are comfortable with admitting, (laughs) you know, in the world gone astray from God. So, for you to be you as you are today, God would have had to predetermine before ever creating the earth, who all would be, what night they would be conceived, and which one of those millions of sperm would reach which egg, he would have had to have caused or passed on or agreed with every illegitimate, depraved act of sex that has ever occurred in order for you to be you today. It is beyond the scope of my imagination to believe that God would have gone through that and then tell us to grow and overcome and change and conform and become like Christ so we could be part of His kingdom. That, that defies the rest of the Bible to interpret this that way. So, he says, he determined ahead of time whom he would call. I think most of us were probably called, or he knew he was going to call us, in this age, when we were little children, wouldn't you think so? I think if we were to sit here and tell our stories, probably all of us could look back at some events that might have happened in our childhood or teen years or whenever that indicated that God would call us someday. I can. I'm sure you can. Uh, So, he made some of those decisions ahead, but then calling is one thing. Choosing is yet another. Choosing is based upon our obedience and his acceptance of us and giving us grace and mercy and forgiveness. You don't call a bunch and then choose them having already chosen them 20 billion years ago. No. He's sorting it out. Judgment is now upon us. So, if judgment is now on us, he's judging us day by day as he searches and ponders our heart. So, he predetermined some to be called. And whom he called, them he also justified. Now, Every one of us who was called has sinned at some time in his life, and the penalty of that is death. And the only way that we can be justified is through the blood of Christ. So, if he called you, and you repented and were baptized, he also justified you in the blood of Christ. And whom he justified, them he also glorified. Are you glorified yet? No, he's talking about the process here. He's talking about, I have determined at some point ahead of time that I'm going to call you. And then I'm going to justify you in the blood of Christ. And if you stay within that grace and under the blood of Christ, I will also glorify you. So it's a process that is not yet complete. What shall we then say to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? Well, Satan is against us, but he's not as powerful as God. And there's nothing Satan can do to justify you or to forgive your sins. He can only accuse you of sins that you either have or have not committed, but he can't do anything about them. Only the blood of Christ can do anything about them. So, if God's for us, Satan doesn't matter. And nobody else does. You can be down on somebody all you want. That doesn't hurt them. If God gets down on you, then that'll hurt you. (laughs) That can hurt you. But people, nah, ain't going to hurt you. I mean, people that didn't even understand this understood that to some degree. I used to hear from my grandmother, probably my mother too, all the time, 
Sticks and stones may break my bones, but words can never hurt me. And it's a pretty good thing to keep in mind, because sometimes we can be hurt by words. But David says again in Psalm 119 that uh, the words cannot hurt him. Uh, how, did, how did he put it? It came to my mind, then I, then I lost it. Uh, so he looks to God instead of to man, is the bottom line of that. Now let's not forget what the book of Romans is about. Because we're going to get back into some of the things he was saying earlier. The book of Romans is here to show us that we all have opportunity under God and that He is not a respecter of persons, that everybody has the same opportunity of salvation as anybody else, right? And He makes it very clear that you Jews don't have any advantage. You did have one. You had the law, but you haven't kept it, and you lost your advantage. The Gentiles didn't have it, but sometimes they kept it not even knowing that that's what it was and that all can come under the sacrifice of Christ and be forgiven. But there's nobody that has an advantage then. Uh, we all have the advantage of Christ being our intercessor. So the whole book of Romans, really, is about racism and favoritism. That you can't use race, you can't use intelligence, you can't use your record. We all have to depend upon the sacrifice and the forgiveness of God through Christ's sacrifice. That's what this whole book is about. Uh, and that's what he's saying here. With that theme in mind is that it doesn't matter whether you're Jew or Gentile, God looked at you at some point, whether it was the gleam in your daddy's eye or after you were born, I'm not quite sure. But probably after you were born or when you were already forming in the womb, uh, he did with a few, we know, from Scripture. Well, if he knew Jeremiah from the womb, does that indicate that he didn't know him before the womb? Why wouldn't Jeremiah say, you knew me back before you created the world? No, he didn't say that. He says, you knew me from the womb. That's when God got to know Jeremiah. Not beforehand. His fate hadn't been determined. So all he's trying to say here to the Jews and the Gentiles in Rome is, uh, God is the one who does the calling. And he does it when he determines. And it is on you, and it isn't on somebody else, to say, well, I'm of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and therefore I'm special. I had to be called. He'll make that point here very vociferously in just a little bit. So, he's not trying to give us some great uh, Protestant doctrine here about how everything was predetermined before the foundation of the world, but the plan was predetermined. They had decided that what the plan would be, and that Christ would come to save sinners. Well, if he had to save them, then they were destined to go into the lake of fire, right? And they had to be saved out of it. Well, how could it have been predetermined billions of years ago that you would be in the kingdom of God if you had to be saved out of the fire? Now, what is it in James? It says, of some make, have compassion, making a difference. There, the last verse or two of James. Others jerk out of the fire. How do you have to, why do you have to jerk them out of the fire if you're predetermined to be in the kingdom? See, the whole Bible goes against that Protestant idea. Let's go back to Ephesians 1. It's the only other place in the Bible that these words are used, just to uh, kind of compare what Paul says here. Same author. Here he's not referring to the Romans and the Jews at Rome, but he's writing to, essentially, the, the uh, a Gentile church at Ephesus and calls them the faithful in Christ. Uh, there were probably some Israelite people there, but it was primarily a Gentile church. So he says, grace be to you and peace. Sounds like these Gentiles would have the grace and the peace from God. 
And he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Emmanuel, who has blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. Now, he's not making the argument here that he made in Romans when he was writing to a mixed church who had race problems. Here he was writing predominantly to Gentiles, and he didn't have to convince the Jews that they weren't any better than the Gentiles. So he speaks to them with a very, very positive approach. Okay? Verse 4, According as He has chosen us, Jew and Gentile, in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before Him in love. Now, when He speaks about choosing us before the foundation of the world... It does not follow that he chose us as individuals named Jane, Mary, or Bill. He had a plan and a purpose in mind. And when he says here he chose us before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. Now, how many holy people have there been from Adam to today? Very, very few. Most of them before the New Testament were listed in Hebrews 11. And he says there are others, but not too many. And many who were called fell away in the early New Testament church. Well, why give them the opportunity of salvation, warn them not to have a falling away, if they're going to be saved anyway? He says some will be lost because they don't endure to the end there in Matthew 24. I mean, we could start going through these scriptures and we could find thousands of them that encourage us to not lose what we have lest we miss out. Okay? So those decisions weren't made ahead of time. So he says he chose us that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. He intended all human beings to be holy before Him with obedience and love. But it's been just the opposite. Well, now, if you look at the unholy people who have lived, there's billions and billions and billions of them. And yet he says in Romans 11, which we'll get to, that all Israel shall be saved, and a lot of Gentiles along with them, right? So how could all these unholy people who are destined to die and ultimately go into this lake of fire unless they repent, be saved? That means that something comes along that changes their destination, right? From lake of fire to the kingdom of God. Great white throne judgment. Why do we even keep the great white throne judgment if everything was determined ahead of time? Because those people are lost. Holiness and not having blame and love require effort. So he says, he, was, he determined before he laid it all out that we should become holy, that we should be holy. Well, we didn't do that. Having predetermined as to the adoption of children by Christ to himself according to the good pleasure of his will. Now, that means that we were not born of God, right? If you have a child that you adopted, it was not born of you. You brought it in, it was somebody else's child. Now, these Pharisees that needed to repent, and Paul was one of them who did repent. Do you think Paul, who was killing Christians and urging others to, yeah, 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 go do it, was going to go into the kingdom of God as he was? As a Pharisee of the Pharisees? I don't think so. He had to be struck down and led to repentance and taught before he could go teach. So, we weren't the children of God. From Adam and Eve on down, we were the children of Satan. And now he has adopted us and given us opportunity to not go where we would have gone. To escape that. Right? It doesn't say we were predestinated to be 
saved or to be in the kingdom of God. It says we were predestinated to be adopted by Christ to himself. Children of someone else adopted to Christ, adapted to Christ, received, accepted of Christ, according to the good pleasure of his will. Now, he can choose whom he wants, right? No man can come except the Spirit of the Father draw him, John 6, 44. So, if you were called, it was because God decided to call you. And at some time, from the time you were conceived or born, he predetermined, I'm going to call that one. He might not have called you until you were 50, 60, 70, 80 years old. But he had already made up his mind he was going to do it when he thought the time was right. To adopt you. That's what it's talking about here. Adopting you. Predetermined that you would be adopted. And then whether you adapt to the adoption or not is between you and God as time goes on as you're judged in this life. To the praise of the glory of His grace. What does grace give you? It gives you unmerited pardon. Pardon you do not deserve. That means you were going to die for your sins, right? And therefore, if you sinned and you were going to die for them, it would have had to have been predetermined before the foundations of the world lay that all men were going to die. Eternally. Because the Protestants don't talk about physical death. They're talking about eternal. It was predetermined that you would be in the kingdom of God or go to hell to hear them say it. No, we weren't all predetermined to go to hell. <laughs> he had a plan in mind to give us grace, to give us mercy, to call us, adopt us as his children so that we wouldn't die. And now we are doing our best to change so that we don't die. Now, when he spewed us out in Revelation 3, doesn't that pretty much make the point? You were going to go into the lake of fire unless you repent. So it's not all predetermined. We are on the line right now showing God where our hearts are and whether we will be zealous for him or not. Because we either could lose out or not lose out. And if I'm if it's already predetermined, I'm out of here. I'll go eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow I die. What difference does it make? I'm either going to the kingdom of God or I'm going to the lake of fire, based on that Protestant teaching. No, the, the why does the Spirit groan for us? Because we need help so that we can be part of the kingdom of God. That's part of that context that they're leaving out there in Romans uh where were we, eight or nine? Eight. So we were predetermined to be adopted at some point. And he gave us grace and made us accepted in the beloved, in whom we have redemption. What's redemption? That means you're redeemed from a fate that you were going to have. When they redeemed a lamb in the Old Testament, that lamb had been picked to have its throat cut and be offered as a sacrifice. That's its fate. That's where it was headed. If you redeemed it, you saved it from that. Now, Christ redeems us from our ultimate faith through his blood. So, why did he need to even come to the earth if it was already predetermined what would happen to us? Why did he have to suffer and die for us? Didn't need to. It was all predetermined. Now, when you, when you try to say it was all predetermined, you're fighting the rest of the Bible <laughs> with both hands and feet. Uh, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, and forgiveness of sins, which makes us eligible to be in the kingdom of God, so we don't have to die for them. Now, it's not just talking about past sins when we're still under the Old Covenant. Let's make that clear. Have you sinned yet since you were baptized? 
Well, once or twice, I'm sure. It only takes once to kill you. That's all. So we're redeemed from spiritual sin and spiritual death by the blood of Christ. The forgiveness of sins according to the riches of His pardon, wherein He has abounded toward us in all wisdom and prudence. He, he loves us. Do we grasp that? God loves you even more than you love yourself, if you want a comparison. You don't want to die, do you? I don't want to die. I was talking the other day to some people who were visiting here in the house about all the things that were going on and what I'm doing and how busy I am, and especially since I've had guests coming in, just been busy as a one-armed paper hanger. And... Uh, we were talking about their parents and how they'd died. One of them had had a stroke and lived a little while and died. And then we got talking about how the one parent had been so busy, he said, I don't have time to die. <laughs> I, you know, I, don't, I don't have time for that today. But it's appointed to us all once to die. But we can be saved out of that. And He loves us enough that He came down here and died for us, so we could be saved from that. Well, you don't want to die, and God doesn't want you to die even more than you don't want you to die. That's just a fact. Having made known to us the mystery of His will. What is the mystery of His will? He wills us to live forever. That's His will. That's His purpose. And it is a great mystery. And Paul himself says in 1 Corinthians 15 that the mystery will be resolved when we are changed in the moment of the twinkling of an eye. Now, we understand we're to live forever. We understand that we're not to have any more tears or sorrow or pain or death or any of those things, and we can sort of grasp that to a degree, but we can't grasp glory. We can understand that it is to be, but it's still a mystery to us until it happens. And when it occurs, ah, oh, now I get it. Because you cannot, as a human being, even imagine the wonderful things that God has for us. Paul himself says that. You can't even imagine it. He knew he couldn't imagine it. So it's the mystery of his will according to His good pleasure which He has purposed in Himself. It brings Him joy. Good pleasure is joy to give us eternal life. That's His goal. That's His purpose. That's what He came for. It's what He created us for. He wants it to happen. He's all for us. He's not against us. If Christ be for us, who can be against us? We just read that. We can be against each other, but that doesn't cut any ice. He is for us. That in the dispensation of the fullness of times, when time is fulfilled, at the end time, when it's done, the fullness of times, He might gather together in one. He's going to gather His 144,000 in one at the fullness of time. All things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth, even in Him. He's going to combine what is in heaven with that which is on earth that has been called and then chosen and elected. He'll join them together in marriage. In whom also we have obtained an inheritance being predetermined according to the purpose of Him who works all things after the counsel of His own will. So He's saying there, I called you. You couldn't come unless I called you. And I determined ahead of time what my plan, my purpose was, and what I was going to do. And at some point, He decided to call individuals. I don't know when He called your name or my name in the womb, or when we were three, or when we were twenty, or forty, I don't know. But he did, because he had to call 
many here at the end so that he could choose from them. Well, if he's going to choose from the ones he called, why, how could that be if it's already been predetermined? It doesn't make any sense whatsoever. Anyway, uh, then it talks down there in verse 13, let's not pass that up. You were sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise. Now, doesn't he tell us that the angel will go through and to hold back from destruction until those are sealed that he has chosen? Why do they need sealed if they're going to be there anyway? Because he says, I have my mark on that one. I've chosen him. He's going to be there. Don't you destroy him. All right, let's go back to Romans. That's the main place. But this is the only other place that the term predestination or predetermination is used. And in the context, the Protestant doctrine just doesn't fit it at all. I've taken a lot of time on it, but I, it's important, I think, for us to, to grasp what the real truth is. Why did he tell Israel? Why will you die, O Israel? Choose life. I have set before you life and death. Choose. Now, if it's already predetermined, how are you going to, what difference does it make what you choose? Well, I think I'll choose death. Nope, sorry. Predetermined, you're going to live. Oh, well, I wanted to die. There might be some idiot like that. I don't know. But he said choose. Well, most people would choose life, you would think. It seems ludicrous to think you'd choose death. But here was Israel, all Israel, choosing death by the way they live. I've set before you life and death. Choose life. Why will you die? Ezekiel 33. It goes on and on. Oh, I, I wrote out another one, Ephesians 2.12, where it says, you, have no, you had no hope in the world. Maybe I better go back and read that. Ephesians 2.12. The little booklet we had on predestination didn't go over it quite this thoroughly. Ephesians 2.12 That at that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel. Aliens. Illegal aliens. From God. Had to be adopted. And strangers from the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God, in the world. Well, if you'd been predetermined to be in the kingdom of God, you would have had all the hope in the world, even while you were out in the world sinning. If somebody had said, oh, you're one of those that's predestinated to be in the kingdom of God, you could have said, okay, I'll go ahead and kill this guy, no problem. There's no hope in the world. Now, Paul is saying there was no hope of salvation when you were in the world. So it couldn't have been predetermined. That's crazy. It's not in here at all. So back into Romans 8 then. Uh, I think we left off there in 31 where it says, If God be for us, who can be against us? He that spared not his own Son, but delivered him up for us all to be saved from the fate of death. How shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifies. How can we accuse one another? He says you can't, you can't lay charges against anybody. God is the one who either forgives or doesn't forgive. Satan tries to lay charges against us. He's the accuser of the brethren. The brethren are not accusers of the brethren. Cannot be, or they're being satanic when they do it. So when you accuse somebody... You need, to under, you need to grasp that and you need to think about it. He asks that question. Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? Who, who puts anything on somebody's account? God has to put it on your account. Who, who are you to rack up debt and sin and put it on somebody's spiritual credit card? No, we can't do that. It is God that justifies. 
Who is he that condemns? We can't condemn one another. We better be careful when we judge another man's servant. Christ said that in the Sermon on the Mount. Be very careful about that. Paul's saying the same thing here. Who is he that condemns? It is Christ that died, yea, rather, that is risen again, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. It was all predetermined. He wouldn't need to make intercession. Father, please forgive this one. Yeah, I know he screwed up again. Please forgive him in my blood. Why make intercession if it's already decided? I mean, the very context where it talks about predestination shows that it isn't like the Protestants say. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword? As it is written, For your sake we are killed all the day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. What did they do with the prophets of the Old Testament? Kill most of them. What did they do with the apostles of the New Testament? Kill them all but John. For his sake, we're killed all the day long. Are there going to be martyrs here at the end time? Ninety percent of the church is going to be left out at the lack of mercy of the new world order and be killed. Probably all of them. If the Spirit of God glows at all in someone who is left behind, Satan can see it. The light of God is very glaring in Satan's eyes. If you were ever converted and had the Spirit of God and still have even a smidgen of it, Satan, you'll stand out like a neon sign to Satan. And he will go after her remnant that are left behind. And he'll get them. He'll overcome the saints. Daniel 11. So, but he says, who's going to separate us from the love of Christ? All these things that can happen to us can't separate His love from us. Now, we can allow these things to destroy our love for Him. We're in no danger of Him never loving us. We're not in danger of that at all. He will love us till the bitter end if we have a bitter end and wish we would repent like Esau. So you can't get away from the love of God. He loved the whole world, sinners and all. So you who have been called according to His purpose have received the grace of God and His love is being enacted through you and you can't be separated from His affection and His love even though He might get angry at you and chasten you. And He might let you die like He did the prophets and the apostles. The last two, the two witnesses against the whole world are going to die. So what's happened in the past is going to happen again. But they can't be separated from God's love. Three days later, they're coming up. We are counted as sheep for the slaughter. Nay, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through Him that loved us. Conquerors, a synonym is overcomers. We're more than overcomers, we're more than conquerors, who is our spiritual battle against? Not flesh and blood, but against spirits and powers, Satan the devil and his demons is where our real fight is, not with, not with humans. Why bother to fight with humans? We've got a bigger spiritual battle going on. Don't need to fight with humans. Now, if humans fight with us, sometimes we have to fight back. Christ did say if someone was going to break into your house and kill your family, that you would have prevented it if you'd have known it. So self-defense is not wrong, despite some things we were taught off and on in worldwide years ago. Uh, self-defense fits Scripture. Christ himself said so. We conquer through him that loved us. We can't conquer on our own. Christ said of himself, even with the Spirit of God, he could do nothing of himself. It was the Father working through him. And you and I cannot grow and overcome without support and help from above through Him that loved us and intercedes for us and forgives us. 
For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come. Nothing. He names a whole variety of things there. Nor height, nor depth, nor any other creation shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Emmanuel our Lord. He mentions principalities there and powers. That's satanic power. No matter how much Satan might accuse us, no matter how much he might tempt us and cause us to sin, even as we sin, we cannot be separated from God's love. Now, we understand that in a small way with our own children. Al Capone's mother loved him. Hitler's mother loved him. Mussolini's mother, Stalin's mother loved him. Esau's mother loved him. How are you separated from a mother's love, most generally? It's hard to do. No matter how you turn out, Mama will probably defend you as you go to the lethal injection. They got the wrong guy. My son wouldn't do that. My son couldn't do that. He's my own flesh and blood. That's not my son. You got the wrong guy. And they'll appeal and appeal and appeal because they just can't believe that their son would have done what their son did. Now, some people are more realistic than that. I understand that. And they may realize, yes, my son could do that. My son did do that. I used to tell people in the local congregation, if you see my kids doing something you don't, they oughtn't to be doing, pick them up and beat their butt. That's what I told them. Because I knew my children were capable of doing things they shouldn't do. I was realistic about that because I'd been a boy one day and was an adult at that time, and I still needed battle at times. So, but that didn't mean I didn't love my kids. God loves, chastens every son whom he loves. So God, you can't be separated from God's love for you. The only thing Satan can do is separate you from loving God. And that we need to guard against and endure to the end and in patience wait and hope for the salvation of the glory of God to come upon us. So he's saying it just doesn't matter. Jew or Gentile, that's the subject here. Those whom God called, and even those He hasn't called, cannot be separated from the love of God. So you don't have to worry about that. You know, when in human relationships, we worry about it sometimes. Husbands and wives, do you still love me? Do you really love me? Because we're insecure and not sure about relationships sometimes. Kids can crawl in their parents' lap and say, Do you love me, Mommy? Do you love me, Daddy? Haven't your kids done that at some point in their life? Yes, I love you, sweetheart. But I'm going to beat your butt anyway. <laughs> you know? But you do. You love them. But they want to be secure in that love. So they'll come and hug you and hold you and, and, and receive your love in terms of hugs and kisses and and uh, nice words you say to them. And we do that, don't we? Even when they don't solicit it, we'll pick them up and say, I love you. You're my kid and I love you. But we want to be secure and know that we're loved. A child that doesn't know whether his parent loves him or not is a frustrated, confused child. So he's removing frustration here for us, isn't he? He's saying, it doesn't matter. I love you no matter what. Nothing can separate the fact that I love you. And if you go into the lake of fire, I'm going to be very, very sad. Because I still love you up until you're gone. Hey, that's positive. Now all we got to do is love Him. You can't, you can't get away from His love. Now just love Him back. Love Him back with all your heart. That's what He wants. He is just sitting there waiting and hoping that He can give us His kingdom. It's His good pleasure to do so. Jew and Gentile. 
didn't matter. Some of these people were squirming in their seats. You mean he loves those Gentiles too? You know, that's what this is all about. Is there's no favoritism with God. Every human being he made, he loved and he wants to adopt into his kingdom. And that desire and that hope and that help will always be there if we call upon it. So let's stop there.